This morning we continue our study that we've entitled, Let Us Pray. And we felt this series extremely important and timely. As God has led us as leaders here at Calvary to be incredibly intentional about prayer. Why do I say it that way? You know, a lot of people pay lip service to things that they know they should do, but never put anything into place to change their course, to change their behavior, to make it happen, because they're not intentional about it. In fact, I've even discovered that many Christians are a little bit afraid of that word, to be intentional about everything. It sounds like, oh, well, that which has begun in the Spirit, you're now trying to perfect in the flesh. I disagree. Paul was intentional about taking the gospel everywhere that he went. And that required him to do certain things to get the gospel there. Why is it foreign for us to have to be intentional about applying certain principles into our Christian life? First of all, if we're going to be intentional about prayer, we've got to make time to what? Pray. If we're going to be intentional about reading the Word, we have to make time to read the Word. We have to be intentional about it. We can't just put the Bible under our pillow and by osmosis grab the whole thing. It's not going to work, man. We have to be intentional about prayer. So to encourage that intentionality, what we wanted to do is this. Number one, show you and invite you to pray. Demonstrate how God wants you to pray. We did that in our first session. In our last two, our second and third session, we taught you how to pray as we looked at the template there here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, 5 through 15. Today, we want to be intentional about prayer by eliminating anything that would hinder our prayer life. Now, if you're note takers, you're going to want to take notes this morning. The Bible tells us very clearly that there are six things that are going to hinder a person's prayer life. And we want to address those six things this morning. And when I talk about hindering your prayer life, I'm talking about obstructing it. Something that's going to get in the way of your communication between you and God. Not that God is severed from you as your Lord and Savior and you as His child, But the the lines of communication may be blocked by one of these things that may hinder or obstruct your prayer life. Maybe you're in a position like that today, where you've tried over the last week to be more intentional about your prayer life, but you feel like, man, it's not going any farther than the ceiling. I'm not getting past the shingles. I'm not getting past the drywall. Maybe it's something that's occurring in your life that is hindering your prayer life. And God wants us to bring it out and to deal with it this morning. I believe the Bible in six different places tells us very clearly that there are six uh, different reasons why our prayer lives can be hindered. I've often heard people say, you know, I I was really into prayer, but then I didn't see God answering, and I didn't see things happening, and it just kind of trickled off, and it just kind of trailed off, and I'm really not as intentional or as passionate about it any longer. And never once do they seem to consider that it may be something in their lives that is contributing to that prayer life being hindered. 
So this morning I wanted to take this time with you to introduce you to six things. And if we're going to be fruitful in our endeavors this morning, we're going to have to be honest with ourselves personally. Right? And we're going to have to let the Word of God do its job. Getting into the darkness, getting into the closets of our minds and our hearts, opening up those doors and cleaning it out that nothing may obstruct or hinder our prayer lives. Do we all agree? I think before we start, we need to pray and open our hearts to God. Father, we come before you right now. And Lord, prayer in the life of the believer should be as natural as breathing, Lord. And yet it seems to be the hardest thing for us to do. And many make excuses for it being hard, when in actuality it comes down to self-discipline and self-control. It comes down to being intentional about getting on our knees and beginning to pray. Some of us here today might be frustrated because they feel as if their prayers go no higher than the ceiling and you don't seem to answer or you don't seem to be there or you seem to be just, uh, you have them on do not disturb or something. But Lord, in actuality, it's something that we need to get right in our own hearts. So we pray that your word would do its work in our lives today through the power of the Holy Spirit and eliminate anything that may hinder a fruitful, intentional, active prayer life. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Let's get right at it this morning. And we begin by discovering the first thing that will hinder our prayer lives, and that is praying selfishly. James 4.3 states, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Greg Laurie commented on it and said this, I can come and pray the most beautiful prayer conceivable, but if my heart is in the wrong place, and if I'm asking for that answer from God and its motives are from selfishness, God will not hear me. I don't know about you, but selfishness is a problem in our culture today, isn't it? Is it possible that we as individuals can pray selfishly when we want to pray and to obtain those things that would satisfy our heart, our needs, rather than to glorify God? Now, only God can show you if you are praying in a selfish manner. It is something that occurs as you read through the Word of God, as God transforms your mind, He transforms your heart. As you go through the Word of God, He will show you if those prayers that you are offering to Him are selfish or selfless. One commentator wrote and quoted L.T. Johnson, as L.T. Johnson said that this passage in James shows the gift-giving God here is manipulated as a kind of vending machine precisely for the purposes of self-gratification. When we talk about spending this type of prayer on ourselves, listen to what he writes. The people have put all they had, spilled all their coins into prayers for the wrong thing. To use James' words, they have spent their prayers in the realm of exploring and increasing their pleasure 
In the preposition that we find in the verse in, it reveals that their capital has spent in prayers in the realm of their cravings, pleasures, desires, zeal, and ambition. This was the world they inhabited. This was the world they sought to increase. This was the world that shaped their every thought and prayer. It is possible for us to pray selfishly. I've been praying for a Corvette for years. I even try to justify it and say, Lord, in, on Sunday morning I can pray longer at home, leave a little bit later, and still get to church on time. Lord, you certainly don't care how fast I get to 55, do you? And yet, Lord, bless me with a Corolla. And now I have to pray before and during my drive here just so I get here. We can pray for selfish purposes. We can pray for good things. Now please hear me on this. We can pray for good things, but for the wrong purposes. And God often delays His answers so we conform our will to His will and sometimes just changing them, our, our approach and saying, Lord, not just for my purposes, but for Your glory. I can't tell you how many times I've heard spouses say, I'm praying for my husband to change because certainly he needs to. Or husbands saying, I'm, I'm praying for my kids because they're going to go home to God real soon and I want to make sure they go to heaven. And rarely do we ever stop for a moment to consider, Lord, change me that I may be a better father. Change me that I may be a better wife. Often we direct it on someone else and selfishly we bring about, Lord, it's all them. I'm fine in this equation. has nothing to do with me. And in actuality, it has everything to do with you. And sometimes refocusing our attention. I think of 1 Samuel and when Hannah desired a child and it wasn't coming, it wasn't happening and she was being ridiculed for her barrenness and all of a sudden she aligned her will with God's will that that child that she had be given over to God and as soon as she did that, the child was given and God was glorified and Samuel the prophet was born. Sometimes we can pray selfishly and God will not hear our prayers. But the word of God will show us in our hearts if that is the case as you pray unto him. The second one is one that I think is very concerning for Americans today. And that is the, the reality of idolatry in the heart of the believer. For Ezekiel wrote in Ezekiel 4.3, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces, should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? As one wrote, he says, the implication of that statement by God is that when we have idols in our lives, He is not going to hear our prayers. Idols in our hearts cause God not to listen to what we have to say. I think idolatry is one of the number one sins that is crippling American Christians today. And I'll tell you why. It's because American Christians don't understand what idolatry is. Most, I think, would adamantly deny that they have any problem with idolatry whatsoever. But in actuality, it is a real problem within their life. 
So the very first thing we must do as Christians is define what is idolatry. And I love the way Greg Laurie does it. But what is an idol, he asks. Now listen to him carefully, because I agree with his definition. An idol is anyone or anything that takes the place of God in our lives. So that really broadens the possibilities. It's any object, any idea, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, or whatever that has one's primary concern or loyalty, so it actually diminishes your trust and loyalty to God. So let me ask you a question today. When I am asked, how do I know if I'm dealing with idolatry? How do I know that idolatry is a problem in my life? I'm going to ask you one question right now to help you identify the truth to that answer. You're going to have to be honest with yourself. We're not going to have you raise your hands or share your answers with the class this morning. But this question is key crucial to identifying the reality of idolatry in your life. On a piece of paper, or in your mind's heart, I want you to write down this question. What is the thing that you are the most passionate about in your life and could not live without? What is the thing that you are the most passionate about in your life and could not live without? Take a minute to think of that honestly. And as you come to that conclusion, as you recognize what you are most passionate about in your life, and you could not live without, if anything is there other than God and His Son, Jesus Christ, that item that you have placed there is an idol before Him. Now you say, oh, that's pretty radical. We serve a jealous God. He'll have no other gods before him. Paul the Apostle made it clear that Jesus Christ must reign preeminently within our hearts, solely. We are to love the Lord God with all of our what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. The scariest word in that verse is the word all, right? If I'm giving my attention and affections onto something else, if I'm more passionate about anything above God, that has become an idol in my life. I challenge you to refute that as you work through and read the scriptures for yourself. That's our God. Anything that we are more passionate about than him has become an idol. One of my favorite pastors, Alan Redpath, a great British pastor, wrote in his commentary on this. He said, Our God is the person we think the most precious, for whom we would make the greatest sacrifice, who moves our hearts with the warmest love. He or it is the person in whom, if we lost, would leave us desolate. Do you have an idol in your life? Is it more important to you than the person of Jesus Christ? Is there something that you are more passionate about and that excites you more and that you are more dedicated to than Him? If that is the case, 
You are struggling with the sin of idolatry and that must be repented of. Why? Because it's going to hinder your prayer life. It's going to hinder your prayer life. Number three. This is another issue for so many of us today. Another hindrance to our prayer life is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Mark wrote in his gospel, Mark eleven twenty five, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. As we concluded the template of prayer that God has given us in Matthew chapter 6, he said this, For if you forgive other their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now many don't understand how this hinders our prayer life. Forgiveness is the pathway to God. What paved the way for you and I to return to God was forgiveness. What indicates that we have a clear conscience before God is allowing ourselves to forgive others. But we are very stingy when it comes to forgiveness today in the United States of America towards our fellow man, towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, towards our own family members. And I often hear from people, but they just don't deserve my forgiveness. Or they have not done anything to earn my forgiveness. And therefore I am not forgiving them. They haven't asked for it, so I ain't giving it. Or the one I like the most is what people say to me, I've forgiven, but I certainly haven't forgotten. When a Christian says something like that, I have to seriously ask the question, do they fully understand how God has forgiven them? Because if I am so reluctant to forgive someone else, how in the world can I say that I truly understand how much God has forgiven me? And why is it that our unforgiveness is often directed towards those in whom we're supposed to love dearly? How many wives say that they cannot forgive their husbands? How many husbands say they cannot forgive their wives? Etc. God asks us to forgive because we have been forgiven. You and I have no right to hold unforgiveness over anyone's head. How can we expect God to forgive us when we are so unwilling to forgive another person. And I will tell you, I have often felt times of real dryness and real distance from God when I was harboring bitterness towards another person. And I stated last week very candidly, very personally, that one of those people was my own mother. As I was angry at the way we grew up as a family, as I was angry at uh, the different things that I experienced at the hands of an alcoholic, as I was angry at the things that it limited me in my abilities and so forth, I was angry because of that scenario. And it wasn't until God gave me the grace to genuinely forgive my mom that I experienced real freedom in my own life. 
I'm telling you, bitterness is destroying people from the inside out. And the key to alleviate that bitterness is forgiveness. Forgive, but they don't deserve it. Forgive them for your sake. But they haven't asked for it. Forgive them for your sake. Because Christ has forgiven you. Just forgive them and leave them on to God. And that's exactly what I did with my mom. I said, Lord, I forgive her, and by your grace, allow me to forgive her. And I leave her in your hands. And several years later, she came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Unforgiveness will hinder our prayers. Is there anyone that you are harboring bitterness towards this morning? Is there anyone that you haven't forgiven that you need to forgive simply on the basis of the fact that God has forgiven you through the person of Jesus Christ? As one wrote, he said, Jesus is saying that to fail to forgive others is to demonstrate that one has not felt the saving touch of God. Or Jesus, when he stated, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there you remember your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And within the realm of that understanding of gift was your prayers to God. Get right. Forgive those who you have need to forgive. Number four. Unconfessed sin can hinder our prayers. As the psalmist wrote, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Or as Isaiah wrote in 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that He cannot save, or His ear dull that He cannot hear. But your iniquity have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden your, His face from you so that he does not hear. R.A. Torrey summed it up so beautifully when he wrote this. Sin hinders prayer. Many a man prays and prays and prays and gets absolutely no answer to his prayer. Perhaps he is tempted to think that it is not the will of God to answer. Or he may think that the days when God answered prayer, if he ever did, are over. So the Israelites seemed to have thought that the Lord's hand was shortened, that he could not save, and that his ears had become heavy, that he could no longer hear. Many and many and many a man is crying to God in vain simply because of sin in his life. It may be some sin in the past that has been unconfessed and unjudged. It may have been some sin in the present that is cherished. Very likely it is not even looked upon as sin. But there is sin nonetheless, hidden away somewhere in the heart or in the life, and God will not hear. And that might be some of you today. Is there some sin in your life that you are not dealing with? Maybe it's a sin like R.A. Torrey stated that you're unaware of, and as you read the Word of God, you learn more about God, and you learn more about yourself as it gives you an accurate reflection of yourself, and that accurate reflection only comes by the Word of God itself. Is there some sin in your life that you're not dealing with? And 
it's just clouding that intimacy with God. God clearly tells us that sin will not allow God to hear us. So confess it. Get right with God today. Pull it out of the closet that it's been buried in possibly for so long and get right with God, whatever it may be. Trust me, it's not worth holding on to. When I got saved, one of the sayings that I had adopted for myself, and even though I was only 16 years old, I said, the devil already had too many years of my life. I'm not going to give him any more. Now that I have seen what my Savior can do, now that I know the reality that He is my God, I'm not going to sin any longer and be hindered by that sin in my life or in my prayer life. One prayer you can pray this morning is found in the Psalms. Let me read it to you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. I like what one wrote when he said, Are you willing to say, Lord, shine the spotlight of your conviction in my heart? And if there is anything there that does not belong, would you please show it to me that I might confess it as sin and get rid of it? Some of us don't want to pray that prayer. I don't think I need to do that, they say. Why? We're afraid that he will show us something but there is something there. Don't you want to get rid of it? So confess your sin that can hinder your prayer life and understand that the only sin God will not forgive is the sin that I will not confess. Get right with God, whatever that may entail. Remember, all things are open and naked unto the Lord. There's nothing hidden from Him. What you do in public is seen, and what you do in private is seen. But get right with God this morning so your prayer lives may not be hindered. This next one might surprise you. And I'd like to speak now to the husbands who are here this morning, and to those who may listen to this message afterwards. 1 Peter 3.7 states, Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now listen, what does this last portion say? So that your prayers may not be hindered. What originally led me to understand that my prayers could be hindered was the fact that in 1 Peter Three times Peter states clearly in his letter that it is possible for prayers to be hindered by our lifestyle and conduct. Three times he states that. This is one of the three times. And as a result, it started me to look through the Bible and asking myself the question, are there certain things that can hinder my personal prayer lives? Now, husbands, this is written to you and I. Very clearly, Peter's addressing us. And there are three principles that stand out. Number one, this is uniquely addressed to husbands. I'd like to apply it to wives. 
In a sense, I could, but really it is speaking to husbands. So to be honest with the text, men, husbands, this is for us. First of all, let's understand this. There are two things God is asking us to do. To dwell or to live with our wives according to understanding and to give honor to her. Now these words may not have the same impact upon us as it would someone in that culture. Women were a afterthought in the society and the culture in the time Peter was writing. In fact, in certain regards, livestock had more value than even a woman did. Now before you throw anything at me, I'm just sharing with you what history states. This was radical. A husband should cherish his wife in such regard. It was radical to say the least. And Peter is telling the husbands to understand the wife as Christ understood the wife. As Christ valued the wife. As he lists there that they are fellow heirs to the same grace that we have. That there is neither male nor female. That they are the weaker vessel and God has orchestrated and architected the way marriage should be. And if we will submit to that architecture, we will have a healthy marriage, though it takes maintenance, it takes time, and it requires us to be intentional about it. He wants the husbands to understand that they must treat and live with their wife according to understanding. Understanding who she is, And more importantly, understanding how God, Christ, views her. Paul made this apparent when he stated very clearly that the relationship between a husband and a wife was meant to mirror the reality of the relationship between Christ and the church. Though a mystery at that time, we see it now through hindsight very clearly that marriages mean a lot to God. And I'll tell you right now, Doing this 20 years, you can fight against the architect of marriage, God. You can fight against His design and think you can do it better. Think you're going to be more satisfied if you do it your way. And all you're going to do to yourself as a Christian is frustrate yourself to no end. Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So husbands, if we are going to have an effective prayer life with our wives, we must live with understanding, view them as Christ views them, understand them for who they are and cherish them. And that is contained in the second portion where we are to give honor to them. And that honor means respect. You know, we often say that wives should respect our husbands, but equally I believe husbands should respect their wives, and we show them that respect as we honor them. In 21 years of marriage, I have made it a purpose never to say anything derogatory concerning my wife, Dina. And if anybody dares to say anything derogatory about my wife, Dina, we are going to step into church discipline very quickly. And I will have the deacons beat you up. Okay? I don't get my hands dirty anymore. But if 
I am not going to speak of my wife in a derogatory tone to anyone at any time. And all of you here know me well enough that I have never said anything to Dina. Because do you know how many times I have been in groups of people where the husband will come in and just uh, degrade his wife to no end? Talking about all of the things she does wrong and nothing of what she does right. And yet, they get upset when others don't respect their wives. Really? How can you expect others to if you yourself won't? I take exception to that. Or when men brag about certain things that they shouldn't brag about that is indecent. I have a real issue with that. In fact, years ago, in one of our men's fellowship, we had a man who was speaking inappropriately of his wife concerning things that should never have been talked about. I kicked him out of the group. I said, get out of here, man. I said, because no one here needs to see or hear about your wife in that way. We need to honor our wives, gentlemen. We need to dwell with them, live with them, and understanding and understand them as God has created them. We need to view them as God views them. And here, more importantly, guys, here's where it really becomes something. We must love them as Jesus Christ loved the church. And we do so so our prayer lives won't be hindered. So many don't understand that if our marriages aren't where God would have us to be, it will hinder our prayer lives. Lastly, in number six, found in James, a lack of faith will hinder our prayer lives. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. When we talk about having faith, unfortunately, this has been so skewed and distorted by inappropriate and unbiblical interpretations that often we lose sight of what is actually being said here. Some will teach us that if we only had a certain amount of faith, we could ask God to do something and He would do it for us, putting all the emphasis upon us. But we have numerous examples where God acted on behalf of a person who had little faith to no faith, and some who had great faith. So what exactly are we talking about by having faith? What is being doubted that is causing us to be tossed to and fro concerning our belief and trust in God. There are three questions that I believe balance this out for us. Because I have heard these people say, as someone is praying for healing because they've just been diagnosed with a terminal disease, And because God did not answer, it is obviously a result of their lack of faith, really. Or, those who say that all you do is need faith, and then you could have God move as you desire to have Him move. Then who is God in that equation, you or Him? Three things I want to ask you this morning. To help you understand this concept of faith. 
There are three questions that will define this faith for us to help us understand if we do have faith and if we're applying it into our prayer lives. Number one, do you believe that God is able to answer your prayers? Number one, do you believe that God is able to answer your prayers? This is just a question that addresses faith in ability. Do you believe that God can answer prayer? If you can say yes to that, then you have faith that God can answer prayer, right? That simple. Number two, do you believe that God wants to answer his children's prayers? That is faith in his character. Now we know that the Bible invites us to prayer. We know that God enjoys answering our prayer and all of us have enjoyed answered prayer at one time or another. That God is for us. He's not against us and He wants for us those things that He would have for us. But it's this last question that is often neglected that balances the first two. And that is, do you believe that God knows what is best? Now this balances out the other two. Because this would state if you said, yes, I believe God knows what is best, then you are saying that you have faith in His sovereignty. Not my will, but your will be done. And it balances the first two. Yes, I know God is able to answer my prayers. Yes, I know God uh, desires to answer my prayers. But I know... Thirdly, God knows what is best. God's will is best in all circumstances. And even though I may not get it, He does. And the character of the Word of God tells me that He's a good God, and He's a good God all the time. And that He loves me dearly and deeply. And He knows what's best for me. That allows us to exercise this faith in God without doubting. Often people will take me to Mark 6, 1 through 6, and they will say to me, don't you understand that the lack of faith that people had actually hindered Jesus from doing all that God wanted to do? I understand that concept, I do. And if you have your Bibles, turn there with me to Mark 6. In verse 1, we start and begin. Now he went away from there and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom that is given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, um, Hosus and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense of him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hand on few sick people and they were healed, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. What was their lack of faith actually in? That's the question here. They didn't believe that he was who he said he was, right? Look at the text very clearly. 
He introduced himself. They were amazed and astonished by where is this guy getting this stuff from and how can he have such wisdom and how can he do such mighty works? They don't know who he is. The lack of faith was in the identity of the person of Jesus Christ. They didn't get it. They didn't get him. They didn't acknowledge him. He did a few things, and he was still able to do a few things, but he wasn't going to entertain that doubt, that skepticism, that critical hard attitude amongst those people. As he said, hey, prophets aren't without honor except in their own hometown and among their own household. I'm not going to entertain this. I'm not going to bolster this. If they don't believe, they don't believe. But it wasn't that he couldn't do it. It's that he wasn't willing to do it. He could not. He, he, would not, he would not gratify them in that way. He would not appease them in that way because they did not know who he is. As I read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, I discover the true character of God. I understand who he is and what he desires to do and what he is capable of doing. And therefore, in that understanding, that true understanding of him, I then can go to him with those assurances of those first three things that we discussed. That number one, he is able to answer my prayer. Number two, he wants and desires to answer my prayer. And number three, he knows what's best. And if I can have faith in those three things, knowing who God is, trusting him in such a way, then I can have confidence and I won't be tossed to and fro doubting who he is. Once I understand the characteristic of God and understand that it's a continuous characteristic, that it continues from this point forward, it's consistent, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I can be assured and confident and uh, secure in that understanding. And in an insecure world, I can stand secure because of who he is. Those are the six things that I find will hinder your prayers. Number one, selfishness. Asking with the wrong motives. Number two, idols in our lives. Number three, unforgiveness. Number four, unconfessed sin. Number five, an improper relationship with, between a husband and wife. And number six, unbelief. And as we close this morning, I leave you with these words from Peter. As he writes... The end of all things is is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers.